Hello guys, welcome back to the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. In today's episode, before I get into Matthew and I's interview with Jeff Tui, got some news about the show and about uh, some sad news about the NHL. Starting off, um, the show is going a lot more away from interview style podcasts. This is going to be one of the last interviews you see in a while. Um, but yeah, looking to get be more opinionated on certain things and... Uh, Matthew is unfortunately leaving the show, but he might come back for a couple interviews and stuff like that. But I want to thank Jeff Tui for coming on to talk with us. It was a great talk we had. And also some sad news. Uh, Chris Daigle, NHL player agent, has passed away at the age of 42. And I just want to say rest in peace. And my, my prayers go out to their family. And I just it's just a tough time, and this just makes it even tougher. But let's get into some NHL news here. So starting it off, we got the whole Penguins general management general management situation. So starting it off, Jim Rutherford steps down, and a lot of people at first thought it was for health reasons, and he did come out and say that it was not health reasons, it was personal reasons, and he will decide if he wants to come back to management this offseason. He said, quote, I don't think it serves anybody well. I've been treated here first class, and I really appreciate and respect what they've done for me. That's the way I want to leave the Penguins. And that's a great quote, actually. That's a perfect way to say it, to leave. Uh, I mean, Jim Rutherford's made some, a lot of questionable moves in the past season or seasons. But he's a three-time Stanley Cup champion with two different franchises. He's won one in Carolina, two in Pittsburgh. So he's going to be doing something right. And then the Penguins CEO came out and made a statement. We are not in a rebuilding mode. We are in a win-now mode. And I think that there was rumors floating around that Rutherford was trying to trade major defenseman Chris Letang before the before he stepped down and they kind of vetoed it. And you know what? I wouldn't be opposed to trading Letang, but he is definitely by far their best defenseman. And losing Schultz, if they would have kept Schultz, I think that they, the management would have been okay with it. I think the rumor was that they were going for, they had a deal finalized with a North Division defenseman. So could have been Mete, could have been, I don't even know who else is available. I'd probably say Mete is literally the only guy that they could have went out for, unless they go for a roster player. I don't really know who they'd want. Maybe they could have went Flames, went for Hannafin. I mean, Hannafin would play really well in Pittsburgh, but hey, I guess we're not going to see that. I mean, Coming out to say that they're in rebuilding mode, if they were in rebuilding mode, that'd be sad because you take one glance at their prospect pool and that'll tell you that they're going to take a couple years to even want to be in rebuilding mode. They have nothing. They really only have Crosby, Malkin left to carry that team, hopefully. Gensel plays well. Rust has been good. Zucker's been good. But other than that, their prospect pool is just nothing to ride home about. It's probably the worst prospect pool in the league. But, hey, that's just my thoughts on it. I mean, they have a core pieces to win a cup. They just need some more consistent goaltending. And you've seen it thrown around that they don't, that goaltending's been their problem. But if you look at it, they've thrown away Matt Murray, thrown away Jari. I mean, Jari's played brutal this season. So what, Dismiss? I think Dismiss has the reins now. So that's really interesting because I didn't expect coming into this season they would see Casey DeSmith as the starter. But they do have Joel Blomquist in their prospect pool, who might be their best piece in their prospect pool, other than Poulin. But I think he's already 
breaking into the AHL. With Blomquist, I think he deserved. He had a couple. He should have had more chances in the World Juniors, but he just didn't get those chances. They went with Kari Piroinen there, the starter. And the Penguins do name their interim general manager Patrick Alvin. He's the first Swede to sit in the GM's chair, even though he is an interim. And they did say that they want to hire a new GM in the next two to three weeks. So before we go to that, I want to take a look back at Jim Rutherford's general management career. As I said before, three-time Stanley Cup champ, two with Pittsburgh and one with Carolina. He was the GM of the year in 2015-16, inducted in the Hockey Hall of Fame for a builder. And he's also had some pretty notable trades. For the good trades, the Jordan Stahl to Carolina for a first, Brandon Sutter and, and Brian Dumoulin. That was honestly a great trade. Hornquist to Florida for Seaver and Mastin. Matheson. I think we all know that was the bad trade there. The Phil Kessel trade was honestly really good. I think the second one wasn't very good, but the first one was pretty good for them. And then the one of the worst trades I think he's done that people don't really talk about much. He actually swapped Eric Goodbranson for Tanner Pearson one for one. I mean, that is brutal. Goodbranson is a third-pairing defenseman, and Pearson's a uh, second-liner. So, I don't know. That's not really the fairest swap. But, and if we look at their potential hires, and I have three hires and three do-not hires. First potential hire, I got George McPhee. He did great work with the Caps and building the Golden Knights. He was a key piece in building that team. And it was sad to see him go from Vegas. I forget the exact reason that he left off the top of my head, but Kelly McCrimmon's doing good work there, so I see what they did there. And the second potential hire, I know a lot of people were saying do not hire Ron Hextall, and I think it was either NHL Network or Sportsnet that put out a list of the candidates for to take uh, to take Rutherford's spot. And the list goes like this. Tom Fitzgerald, Ron Hextall, Jason Botterill, Peter Shirelli, John Ferguson Jr., and Chris Jury. Right off the bat, Peter Shirelli. You mean the guy who ruined the Oilers and they could have had Barzal. He made some of the worst trades with Boston. Sure, he would have won a cup there, I'm pretty sure. But still, a brutal GM. Probably one of the worst GMs of all time. Don't know why he's still in contention for any job. I'm, I'm pretty sure he has an advisory role in St. Louis right now, which even is surprising. But I actually have a player on the a person, uh, GM on this list for a potential replacement, and that's Ron Hextall. You know what? A lot of people criticize Ron Hextall, but he's made some very good moves in the past. Uh, the Morgan Frost and Farabee for Shen, or for Laterra trade. Or, and Lothera for Shen trade. That was honestly, at the time, that looked like a horrible trade. But Fer- if you look at it now, the corp- the main pieces of that deal are now Farabee and Frost. But they were picks. They are just picks, like draft picks at the time. But if you can get Farabee and Frost in exchange for Braden Shen. I mean, Braden Shen is probably one of the best second liners in the league. Like, he's, he's a, a pure second liner. No first liner. He's not a third liner either. But... For a second liner, that's pretty good. But Frost and Farabee, Farabee's already playing like he, he's an elite top six winger. And Frost has not made the biggest crack in, but he's not looking horrible. 
And the final potential hire is Megan Chaka. I've got a lot of comments about this one, actually, when I was uh, talking with my friends and other people, and they said, you are an idiot. She started an analytic company, which could provide a new look to the Penguins. And you know what? I'd love to see some analytics in hockey. I know every GM uses the littlest bit of analytics, but this would be solely analytics-based. I think, at least that's my opinion. I'm not 100% sure what she would do, but I think she'd bring a great... What's what I'm looking for? A great mind into hockey. And she was she was 95 when people in power and influence last, not 29, I think it was 2019 or 2020, not 2021. But she was a very influential person. And you know what? I'd love to see not even just a woman as a GM, but just a lot of analytics based. Like I saw also, um, I forget his name now, but it was on the top of my head. Corey, it was Corey. I'm proud. I'm not gonna pass it on. It's just Corey. Uh, he's bringing. He's in his Twitter bio. He says bringing NHL stats to the public. Like he's he's not a looks guy. And uh, Puck Empire put out a list of his top twenty picks for the GM. And you know what? I honestly agree with a lot of these picks. Couple with my top three, he has all of them in the top twenty. So that's what I like to see. But you know what? I think that Megan Chico would be a good hire for the Penguins. It'd be interesting to see because they're an analytically not the best team in the league because, I mean, Tristan Jari is a minus 7.5 goal save above expected. Like, that is brutal. But, yeah. So, let's go to the do not hire list. And I know that two of the people on this list are shortlisted for this job. So, this is not looking very good for them. But, starting it off, I got Pierre Maguire, just an analyst, and just with that, he wasn't the great at that. But Pittsburgh wouldn't surprise me at all by hiring this guy. What was it on Chicklets? He was making fun of analytics. I mean, I'm not. I, I like analytics. I use it a lot, but I don't know how you can hate on it. Like it's a, it's very factual, and there's nothing really to dispute about it. Like there's, it works. Analytics give you the best chance to win. Like, it'll set you up for the best possible chance to win. So, I don't know. Pierre Maguire is quite the interesting guy. I, I think he was also in the running for Philly. and Or not Philly, sorry, Florida. And then he also tried to go to Arizona, but that did not work out for him either. And the second do-not-hire I have is Dale Talon. I'm pretty sure he got fired for flinging racial slurs. That is not a great start. And he had an investigation in it, and he also couldn't properly run the Panthers. I mean, Vegas expansion is really all I gotta say. Protecting Petrovic and throwing away Smith and Marcheseau. Like imagine, imagine them, the Panthers, with Smith and Marcheseau right now. We wouldn't even be talking about who's winning the cup. That's your cup winner right there. Well, not really, but that's a pretty offensive powerhouse. And the third on the do not hire list, and this one is completely obvious. And it's Peter Shirelli. I mean, do I have to say much else among his Barzal trade, his, what even was it? I think he traded away Tyler Sagan. But, I mean, it's just brutal. Like, definitely one of the worst GMs of all time. If Rutherford isn't up there, Shirelli has to be up there, too. Like, just a brutal GM. All right, if you look at his trades, he traded away 
Mark Stewart and Blake Wheeler for Valabic and Peverly. Like, imagine the Bruins with Wheeler right now. I mean, that'd be brutal. That'd be crazy. Okay, I don't know why I thought that he was with... That Chiarelli was with the... The Oilers. Apparently, he wasn't actually with the Oilers. Oh, he traded away in, in the... He traded for Caberlet. That honestly wasn't a bad trade. Um... Yeah, but just a brutal GM. Okay, the Phil Kessel trade was actually Phil Kessel for 2010 first. Turned out to be Tyler Sagan. Okay, no. He traded away. Phil Kessel, I was thinking Rutherford, sorry. Actually, this was a good trade for him. He traded away Kessel, and he essentially got Sagan and Hamilton back. But he traded those guys away, so that kind of ruins it. But, you know, you win some, you lose some. Also a brutal GM, but... I mean, oh, man, I'd, if Peter Shirelli gets hired in the NHL, oh, my, 2021 couldn't get any worse, man. It wouldn't surprise me. Oh, my. But let's move on from this Penguins GM situation. And we move on to the San Jose Sharks, and they have some arena clear-ups here. The Sharks are actually allowed back in SAP Center with no fans. And this is actually good for them. I want to see every home team in their, in their home arena. I mean, I guess if if the Sharks were a really good team, you could say that the reason they're losing is because they don't have home ice advantage. But really, for home ice advantage, it's just having your home arena does help. But it, I think it's mainly the home ice advantage is the last change because that can really change the game, to be honest. But the Sharks arena, they're coming back to SAP Center in Santa Clara County. And there was actually... I was actually worried that we might see a relocation in San Jose because of uh, Santa Clara County. And there were some other things with Google, I'm pretty sure, that was going on. Some Something, but I forget exactly what it was. And I want to move on. I, want, I, didn't, I just wanted a brief note with the Sharks Arena. I want to go on to Vince Dunn. And honestly, Vince Dunn, one of probably the best, or if not the best defenseman in what is it? Saint, the One of the best defensemen in St. Louis, if not the best, is Vince Dunn. And he's, I think he was pretty sure he's actually scratched the last other game. Which is really interesting because why are you scratching one of your best defensemen? He might not have been scratched, to be honest. I think he, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I'm pretty sure he was scratched, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, I'm just trying to look at Vince Dunn's stats here because... Honestly, like, he's a very analytics, like, if you look at his analytics, he looks really good, but, okay, I'm looking at his analytics, and I'll look at his base stats. But, yeah, I mean, I even Jay Fresh said it perfectly, he's an analytics darling, like, his analytics show great things, and he was signed to a steal of a contract this offseason. I think it was two by two. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay. Last season, he contributed 2.2 wins to his team. I mean, that's really good for a defenseman. Only playing 71 games, and he wasn't playing the best like in the best situation, 12 goals above replacement. That's pretty good. And if you look at just his regular like points, he had 23 points, 
nine goals, nine first assists, and five second assists. Like, that's that's not horrible numbers. That's really good numbers. And he didn't play much ice time. He had 1,000 minutes over 71 games. It's not brutal. Not the best. But, yeah. I mean, probably one of the best defensemen in St. Louis. I'm going to reiterate that a lot. If he doesn't get traded, I mean, there's been a lot of trade rumors, but if he doesn't get traded, he'll go to Seattle probably, most likely. He could be a top four guy on two-thirds of the NHL, in the NHL. Like, honestly, I was watching the Jets play this game tonight. Uh, at the time of recording this, they just lost to Vancouver 4-1, and they could really use a guy like Vince Dunn to push out a forward or bully you out of the lineup. Analytics beast, though, but he can drive plays on both ends of the ice, and for potential teams, I have four teams where I think he could land. And actually, two of them, ironically, are Canadian teams. I'm going to start off with Philly, though. They need some defense ever since they lost Matt Niskanen and they haven't been able to play defense. I wouldn't be surprised if they send, like, Goss to spare or maybe a D prospect. I would say York, but York is just looking so good. At, he looks so good at that World Juniors, and World Juniors doesn't influence everything, but it does heavily influence a lot of things. But he looked really good. I could see them shipping Frost or Brink plus a first. Like, maybe they do Brink in a first or Gosses Bear in a first for Dunn. I mean, that'd be a good trade for both teams. Vince Dunn would play really good with either a 1-2 with Provorov, maybe throw him on the pair with Provorov. Uh, but yeah, maybe they also got uh, Gustafsson. Gustafsson, not Gustafsson. But yeah, that's why I think Philly can make a strong case for a guy like Vince Dunn. I think they could really use him. And before we go on to the Canadian teams, I got one more, and that's New York. They've looked they looked brutal in the first couple games. Uh, Lafreniere didn't play well. Bucinovic didn't play well. But their defense is starting to round out. I mean, they do have Jack Johnson and, and Brendan Smith in the starting lineup, which is not what you want. But maybe they do Tony D in a first. I mean, people are really hating on Tony D, but I still think he's a little bit left to give in, in the tank. I'll put it all politics aside. He is, he is arguably one of the, a really good top four defensemen, and he'd fit in really well in St. Louis or in Winnipeg. They do, could do Tony D in a first. Maybe they do uh, Libor Hayek and, and a prospect. For D prospects, they got Niels Lundqvist maybe. Or maybe they do Vitaly Kravtsov. I, I feel like they're too high on Kravtsov. But I don't think anyone's in touch, untouchable, to be honest. Back to the first Canadian team for potential trades for Vince Dunn. I'd have to say it's Winnipeg. I think first in Sammy Nuku, maybe throw in a... Because I know a, the rumor deal that people were throwing around would be... The ideal trade for St. Louis would be a first a prospect, and a roster player. So, from Winnipeg, maybe you do... I don't know if you consider Niku a prospect anymore. Maybe you do, like... Uh, maybe you throw in... I don't know, because they don't want to give away Stanley. They don't want to give away Sandberg, really. I mean, Chisizom has some potential. Maybe they do... Maybe they do Chisizom, a first, and Perot or Appleton. I mean, that'd be a decent deal, but that kind of hurts their top nine. If you look at just roster play, maybe they throw Nate Thompson at them. They throw Matthew Perot. I mean, that'd be cap issues. So Winnipeg would need him, but I don't think they have the right pieces to get it done. I wish, watching a lot of Jets games, I feel like Vince Dunn will play really well in Winnipeg. He can honestly, he is a right shot D. No, he's a left shot D. All right, but 
He'd play really good on the second pair with Neil Pionk. I mean, they play. They've been actually thinking about. It, they've been really well together. But Winnipeg would have to put up a good package because the next team here, I feel like, could put a really good package up for a guy like Vincent, and that's Vancouver. I mean, they desperately need defense. They just signed Hamannick, and these guys are all getting injured. I mean, Jalen Chatfield's looked pretty decent these last couple games for Vancouver. So, hey, you never know what they really, really are looking for, but. It doesn't look bad for Vancouver. I mean, it definitely could use a lot of work, but if Hamannick can come back in, if a lot of other players can come back in, it would definitely help them. But this is, before we get into the interview, I want to keep this one really short, this episode, but next episode's also going to be an interview. I'm going to be bringing on Craig Hartsburg. Me and Matthew, this is our last interview, me and Matthew together. So that'll be a good one. It was actually a really good talk with him. It was a quick 20-minute talk, but... I mean, he played with Wayne Gretzky, so 20 minutes of his time is is worth millions to me. But this is a new segment that I'm going to try and get put in every episode, and this is called Conjecture Corner. I was thinking, like, Rumor Roundup, but that's really... I know a lot of people on Instagram use that. Uh, one of the guys I really like looking at for news and just breaking the news is Puck Report. He does speculation stations, so I thought I'd do Conjecture Corner. I mean... It sounds sweet, so I think I'm going to trademark this, and it's going to come in every episode. So, I got six points here, and then I will let keep it short, go into the Jeff Tui interview. Nick Suzuki, first one here, sorry. Nick Suzuki was almost shipped to Columbus for Dubois. And honestly, knowing a couple Habs fans and talking with Habs fans and just... haven't talked with Habs management, I mean, I wish, but... Suzuki, play, his play this season does not warrant the play of Dubois. Like, they're just not equal anymore. I'd say Suzuki has surpassed him. I know a lot of people are saying Suzuki will only be a career second liner. But he's looking like he has a potential to be an elite franchise center. And I think that's why Philip Deneau has been a bit pissed off lately. Because he's just uncertain about his spot by the end of his contract. Like, they were really good. They can roll with all four lines right now. Scory Perry's playing good. I mean, those that Habs team is looking good. I mean, they just lost 2 nothing to Calgary, but, I mean, the refing wasn't on his side. That caught Kinyemi. The hit to the head from Dubois, for, from Dubé, sorry. That was brutal. How do you let that go? Oh, my. I, I hope, and I know NHL safety is looking into it. I hope he gets a couple games for that, because that was brutal. I mean, could at least caught Kinyemi's not injured, but... Suzuki for Dubois wouldn't be worth it. I think the rumored deal at the time was Suzuki plus, and I know Bergevin wouldn't do that because that is really dumb. And keeping it going with the Habs, Mete, today people broke the news that he quote-unquote requested a trade, but Pierre Lebrun revealed that, that, that he didn't actually cancel, uh, request a trade. He's kind of the odd man out in Montreal because if you look at their pairings, they got Sherrod Weber, they play really well together. Edmonton Petrie's been gelling nicely. Romanov Kulak's been playing well together. You don't really want to break up your chemistry to try and throw in a guy like Mete, which, honestly, he doesn't fit their style of play because they're on defense. They got a mixture of big, beefy guys and then the quick guys on each pair, except the first pair. But Petrie is a very good playmaking defenseman, could contend for the North this season. He's looking that good. And he's playing with Joel Edmondson, who's, who's a big guy. He can throw his body around. I mean, coming come playoff time, this is a playoff-built team where you can roll all four lines. you got your defense that can hit. you got very consistent goaltending. 
I mean, they let up two goals and they lost. Like, when you're only letting up, like, two or three goals a game, that's what you want. I mean, they did have that one game against Vancouver that they let up a couple goals. But, you know what? It's, it's I. It's fun. They're playing really well. Arguably the best team in the North Division, I don't think. I think Toronto's a close second, but I think Montreal is playing, like, the best team in that division. And I know Toronto was... Actually, speaking of Toronto, Toronto was in on Mete. And I don't think the Habs want to trade to a rival like that. And Mete, too. Where would they throw in Mete? They take out uh, Justin Hall? Well, people think he's a Norris getting defenseman. I, I don't think he's a Norris guy, but hey, that's just me. And if you look at Munch or Toronto's pairings, they got Riley Brody. They've been... Saying that Brody needs a, a good right-handed, right-shot defenseman for years. He's finally got that guy. And then on the third pair for the Leafs, you have... But quick, quickly, going to talk about the second pair a little bit first. On the second pair, Justin Hall and Jake Muzzin. I mean, Jake Muzzin I knew was really good, and he was kind of carrying Justin Hall last season. And now people are thinking Justin Hall had one good game against the... Oilers, and now they're saying, oh yeah, elite shutdown defenseman, Connor McDavid's father. Like, come on, guys, really? Just brutal. Like, he is not a Norris defenseman. I don't care what people say about Justin Hall as a Norris defenseman. He's just, you just don't, when you think of Norris defensemen, the names that don't, that come to your mind are Roman Yossi, John Carlson, Victor Hedman, Dougie Hamilton. But this year we got Jeff Petrie, Justin Hall. Who was the other ones that I saw floating around? There were some really interesting names coming around here. I know some ones was for their awards they did. For the Norris. I mean, a lot of people are saying Petrangelo. That's honestly a really good pick as well. I mean, Petrangelo's a really good defenseman, so honestly can't disagree with that. But there was this guy who did projections for the awards. Sorry, I'm just trying to find it here quickly while I'm talking about this. Or whatever, I can't find it, but. Continuing on here with the trade rumors. Or actually, I'm trying to find this Leafs decor. I forget what their third pairing is exactly. But I'm pretty sure it consists of. I'm pretty sure it's Sandine and someone. Or no, it's Letnin and Bogosian. Maybe they take out Letnin and throw in Victor Mete with Bogosian. And Bogosian doesn't deserve to be on a roster spot. Like, oh, guy's brutal. But, hey, I'm not an NHL GM. And next, we got some troubles in Vancouver in their coaching. I know that there was, uh, it was hard to work out a deal with Green. And people are actually hating on, on Canucks Twitter. People are getting really mad at Travis Green. I don't think he's to blame here, guys. Pedersen was kind of gone there for the longest bit for the Canucks. So, don't think it's his fault, but Green is probably one of the best coaches for Vancouver. He plays a good, he plays very good style for Vancouver. He coaches good style. 
I don't know. Maybe Green, if he gets fired or something, he goes to Seattle. Like, just intensify that rivalry. That would be insane. Moving on to our third last point. Bruins trade rumors. And I got three players here that were coming up in some trade rumors. And that is Anders Bjork, Jake DeBrusque, and Andre Kasha. And with Anders Bjork, I mean, he's just... He'd be a great third liner or second liner on most teams. There's teams that come to my mind when I think that need third liners is Vancouver. They're very weak there. Um, I'd say a team like Calgary could use some depth. A team like coming to my mind here, Pittsburgh always in some need of some depth. Florida could use a guy like Bjork. Uh, I would say the Flyers, but they're playing really well right now. The Kings always could use a nice, somewhat younger but depth player who can kind of grow up with the the young guys. I'd love to see something like that. San Jose. But San Jose's had a good lineup, some depth. I mean, Patty Morrow's playing fourth line there, so I kind of feel bad for the guy. I think I think he's regretting resigning there playing fourth line. But moving on from Bjork, we got Jake DeBrusque. And I know pe- people are going to be calling on Jake DeBrusque. Honestly, if Oilers weren't in cap hell right now, Jake DeBrusque would be so good in Edmonton. You throw him on a line with McDavid and Dreisaitl or McDavid and Yamamoto, I mean, that is goals, goals, goals right there. Or if you could even try and get a defensive guy, like a defensively-minded player. I I, I can't even think of anybody who really would play like. Ah, uh, I wish McDavid was in Pittsburgh because you throw McDavid with Tanev, you get that guy to play defensive. You get him to play defensive all day, and you get McDavid to be on the offensive. Like That is a pretty elite group of lines there. I mean, I'd love Tanev to go to Edmonton, but he is three. He makes $3.5 too much to be in Edmonton. So moving on, we got Andre, Andre Kasha. Sorry, I might be pronouncing that wrong. I know I'm pronouncing Kasha right, but his first name I'm pronouncing wrong. They got him from Anaheim in the last... Before the trade deadline, it was a couple days before. Kind of surprised people that they didn't wait till the deadline. But speaking of the deadline, quickly, I want to get into this before I get into Kasha. I'm, I'm interested to see how the deadline is going to work this year for teams in the North Division. Unless they want to intertrade, which by the midseason there, I think they should re- have a good idea who's playoff contention and who's not in playoff contention. For example, right now my picks for not in playoff contention would be Edmonton. They honestly could make a jump for the for the fourth spot, but as it lies, my updated rankings is Habs, Leafs, Jets, Flames. I I don't know. I gotta put Canucks there too, but honestly, yeah. So the playoff picture should be more set come deadline time. But if you even look at it, like the Jets trade Dubois or Line A for Dubois and throwing other pieces as well, but, like, they're waiting for Dubois, and unless they get that seven-day quarantine, I don't think we'll see a very active teams in the North Division making playoff pushes, because one of the biggest part of a playoff push is acquiring that one player who pushes you off the edge, over the edge. So, yeah, I, I don't want to talk too much about that. Let's get back into Andre Kasha. Andre Kasha also would play good in Edmonton. I mean, I mean anyone, anyone would play good in Edmonton except for that Cassian, man. Oh, my. But, Andre Kasha should probably probably will be moved. I mean, the Bruins are looking. I think they could go for honestly a quick retool. 
like uh, that meant though it was in the eighties with Gretzky, they always would switch out their bottom six every couple of year, every year. I th- I'm pretty sure that was the story I was told, but that's, that's funny. So we're going to our second last point. The blues are in cap trouble. So this could be why Dunn rumors are heating up. And I mean, why would you trade Dunn for a cap? It's kind of like the Isles trading. Ah, who was it? Devon Taves as a cap dump. Like when you're cap dumping Devon Taves, you know, you're doing something wrong. I don't know how Lou Lamorello won GM of the Year. He did not deserve that. There was a lot better candidates. Frick, give Jim Rutherford it over, over him. Like, that is brutal. Lou Lamorello, really? Really? Also, if they're looking for a cap dump, wouldn't be surprised to see Justin Falk go. He's currently making 6.5 mil for the next seven years. Maybe they try and trade Bozak. Maybe they throw away Schwartz. He's got one year left, a modified no-trade clause. Bozak also has a modified trade no-trade clause. Schwartz is a 15-team no-trade clause, and Bozak's a 10-team no-trade clause. And they both have one year left. 5.3 and 5, respectively. I would say Hoffman, but I highly doubt they would trade Hoffman. Like, they need to clear some money so that Tarasenko can get back. So I think he's going to be ready to come back in the game soon. So I think they really want him to come back. But honestly, who else like, could they trade for cap pumps? There's really nobody else. I mean, they're lucky that they could trade away Jake Allen. And Montreal was looking to solidify their goaltending. But that there's not many teams that are willing to do that in this market. And that's why a lot of people are saying, yes, I, I predicted the watch it. I knew that was going to happen. Well, everybody knew that was going to happen. No one was offering a better package than Winnipeg and Columbus could swap each other. Like, that is the most ideal trade for both teams I've probably seen in my life of watching hockey. But moving on to my final point, and then I'm going to end off the episode, or not the episode, end off the news news hour, even though it's probably going to be around 40 minutes, but call it news, call it conjecture, conjecture corner. Welcome to Conjecture Corner. You should get a little, uh, I want to get one of those sayings for it, like the voiceovers. If anyone knows how to do that or wants to do that, send me a message on Instagram, Boy Talks Hockey. Also on Twitter, BTH Podcast underscore. But our last point here, the Ducks. They were, they were in on Dubois, and they are rumored to need some offensive help. And you know what? I don't think there's really many teams that, that don't need offensive help right now, like, Who's even looking to trade right now? There's really no people trying to trade players actively. And unless, if it is, it's just defensemen right now. Maybe the Ducks can swap, try and get Kasha back. Maybe they go for DeBrusque. Maybe they go for Bjork. Maybe they go all three and send them, I would say a defenseman, but they've already sent enough defensemen over the last three years. So, I don't know. I think this is a perfect place to, to end this part. And I hope you guys enjoy this next interview with Jeff Tui. Hello, guys. Welcome back to the 42nd episode of the Broy Talks Hockey Podcast. And in today's special, Matthew and I are joined by Jeff Tui. Jeff Tui is a three-time OHL champion and worked for the Peterborough Peets for 30 years before moving on to the Arizona and Phoenix Coyotes. How are you doing today, Jeff? 
doing doing well. But uh, Brody, I got to I got to correct you on one thing. I had four OHL championships in Peterborough. So uh, oh, <laughs> and and I also in between going to Arizona, uh, I spent some time in Oshawa too. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm, all I'm basically saying to you is that I'm old compared to you guys. So <laughs> there you go. But you know what? And and I always make sure on the championships because uh, they're so hard to win that uh, you know. I I'm so proud of all four of them and uh, you know, having gone through it, I, it, it's so hard to win a championship. So when you got four, you got to stay uh, proud of them. That's for sure. Yeah, right. Speaking of that, I remember reading, like I was reading an article, it's going back a few years ago, Henri Richard, and he won like 11, 12 uh, Stanley cups in his career. And one yeah. day, like somebody asked him, um, I forgot what the question was. And oh, I think it was like, how many, how many cups do you have? He's like, Oh, um, or no, sorry. It was how many grand? How many grandkids do you have? He's like, oh, I have eleven grandkids. Oh wait, sorry, no, I have eleven cups. I have nine grandkids. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. It's an, it's incredible. Those guys in Montreal that that won those, and you know, even guys that won multiple Stanley Cups, or just to win one Stanley Cup. I mean, I was fortunate in Dallas. Uh, I was a part-time scout there uh, when they won the Stanley Cup. So I have a Stanley Cup ring, uh, which I'm pretty proud of. But my my contributions to that championship were minimal. <laughs> even minimal they were contributions i still have the ring yeah so beautiful do you wear the ring on a daily basis like do you ever just go out and wear the ring and just like show it off kind of <laughs> you know what brody i don't even my ohl championship rings they're they're obviously a lot less uh, uh pretentious than the any than the stanley cup ring but i don't wear them much i i keep them in a safe place and you know i hope at some point my kids or my grandkids want them to you know keep kind of as a memory, but uh, I, I don't wear them a lot. I, I will say the last OHL championship ring that I have, I designed it personally for the Pete's and uh, for the players. And it, it's a pretty nice ring if I do say so myself. So uh, <laughs> if I'm going to any special hockey related uh, uh, things and I wear it, but the Stanley cup ring, as I said, to be honest with you, I was a part-time scout. I was there 10 years, but my contributions to actually winning that I, I think were minimal. So I don't really feel in good conscience I can flaunt that ring, but it's it's certainly nice to have. I don't know. To, uh, to this show, you're always going to be Stanley Cup champion, Jeff. To you. There you go. All right. Let's stay with that. That's good. <laughs> you, you can have a full hand of rings. Like you could just put the, the Stanley Cup ring right here and have your four Pete's rings right there. And you're that right. could just like, that's power right there. That's influence. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I don't look at it that way. Like I said, Brody, I just, I'm so proud. And, and actually I have a tattoo on my uh on my arm that uh it's a peach logo and it's got it's a it's like a four four leaf clover and each leaf kind of there's a there's a year there that's got the it celebrates the four of them and uh you know that's how important or how special it is and i don't flaunt that i just keep it it's on my upper shoulder here but um it's it's very significant to me and and uh i just keep that kind of to myself so so anyway very 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 proud of uh winning some championships and the players that were there and helped us do it. You got to keep, you got to keep that a little bit hidden when you're uh, in, King, in Kingston now or else you're going to get. Uh... Well, it was worse when I went to Oshawa. Matthew. Oh, you had it back when you were, when you were in Oshawa as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got it when I was in Peterborough. So when I go to go to Oshawa, that was the arch rival for a long time. So <laughs> I had to keep it really under, under wraps there. So anyways, it is what it is. All right. So let's get right into it then. Uh, speaking of your, we were uh, discussing the Peterborough Peds. You start you um you started off uh, as a scout for Peter Bro in uh, to start the 80-81 season. Can you just take us through how you were able to acquire that uh, position and um, yep. yeah, very, yeah, very fortunate how that, how that position came about. Sure, yeah, it's it's kind of a neat story. 
uh, Matthew. I I, uh, play, I grew up in Lindsay, Ontario. It's a small town and in, in, uh, just not far from Peterborough here, but played hockey my whole life. And in my draft year for the OHL draft, I got hurt and uh, ended my season. And, uh, you know, whether I would have got drafted or not, I, I don't know. But I, you know, all of a sudden I couldn't play. And, and I'd been working hockey schools and I got involved. Uh, uh, I, I wrote a letter to every junior team in, in Ontario. And I, I, I didn't go to the OHL, but I, I wrote a letter to every tier two, every junior B and just saying, you know, basically I got nothing to do. I'd like to just learn how to scout. And uh, only one team got back to me, the, the Aurora Tigers. And I started kind of working for them, learning about scouting. And uh, I went to university in Sudbury at Laurentian. And in my second year, the Peets made a change. They brought in a guy by the name of Dave Dryden to be the coach and general manager. And I contacted him right away. And I said, you know, I've got two or three years of tier two scouting and you guys don't have a scout in the North. And, and uh, you know, if you're interested, I, I'd love to, you know, be, be part of the Peets because that's, you know, I grew up watching them. And, and uh, so thankfully Dave gave me a chance, uh, basically as a volunteer scout, I didn't get paid. Um, I think when we talked earlier, I was telling you, I, I didn't have a car. Um, so, you know, getting around and, and uh, getting to games wasn't easy, but I, it's what I wanted to do. And, and uh, I kind of grew it from there, but you know, it all started from an injury uh, in, in my draft year for the OHL and, you know, went through tier two for a few years and then started in Peterborough, my second year university. So uh, I was covering the North for them without a car. So that was a challenge. Uh, you mentioned, you mentioned Dave Dryden. Um, I just did a little bit of quick research right now. Uh, any relation to Ken? Yeah, it's his brother. Uh, Dave Dryden was an NHL goalie as well. Uh, played for the Buffalo Sabres and Edmonton Oilers. Played in the WHA, but uh, didn't have the success of his brother Ken. But was a pretty good, pretty good NHL goalie as well. Not many people do have that kind of success. No, you're right. Ken Dryden was pretty special. Uh, do you got? You have any uh, any Ken any Ken Dryden any Dave Dryden stories? Like, did you ever did you ever get a chance to meet Ken? Uh, no, I never never met Ken. But Dave Dryden was a very uh, very nice guy was very good to me. Um, and I spent the whole first year scouting, not getting paid. As I said, I, I, uh, I, I didn't have a, a car, so I was finding my way around And I, you know, I was, I was so happy. I didn't care. But, uh, at the end of the year, Dave Dryden sent me a check for 200 bucks, uh, just to kind of thank me. So I was the happiest guy. I couldn't believe that I got paid to do it. So Dave, Dave was good. He was really good to me. He only lasted in Peterborough for about a year and a half and then uh, lost his job. Uh, a guy by the name of Dick Todd took over from there and uh, he kind of elevated me up uh, through the ranks. But it was Dave Dryden that gave me my first opportunity. Um, so you were you maintained your position as a scout for up until the, 88, 89, uh, the end of the 88-89 season. Then from there you were promoted uh, to the assistant coach slash assistant GM. Um, can you just take us through how that – like? how that promotion came about, like who came, who came to you and offered you the position and uh, just some of the responsibilities, that, the added responsibility that came with uh, a promotion like that? Yeah, well, it was interesting too, interesting part of the story, Matthew. I, uh, you know, I was working for the Peets. When I graduated from university, the only thing I wanted to do was work for the Peets. I, I had opportunities in business and, and uh, you know, I could have done, but <clears throat> I had no interest. I just really wanted to work for the Peets and they didn't have any room. There was a small staff and, uh, I could keep scouting for them, but they didn't, uh, they didn't need anybody full time. So all of a sudden in the middle of the summer, after my, after I graduated from university, the trainer for the Pete's quit and uh, they needed a trainer and, and they came to me and said, Hey, you know, 
uh, we know it's not really what you want to do, but if you want, we, we need a trainer. Do you want to be the trainer? And uh, so I had a business degree and uh, you couldn't do it now because you have to be qualified. But I, I jumped at the opportunity. I went to Peterborough uh, and, and I taught myself to be the trainer. I didn't know how to sharpen skates or uh, treat injuries. So I, I taught myself and uh, I kept doing the scouting too. I did a lot of the scouting. Uh, I was a trainer. I was scouting the small staff. I was, you know, doing press notes, finding billets, selling advertising, all that stuff, even though I was the trainer. So in 88, 89, we won an OHL championship. And uh, at the end of that year, the, the board of directors for the Peets and, and Dick Todd, who was the coach and general manager, I'm sure prompted them, but you know, they, they knew I didn't want to be a trainer the rest of my life. And, and so they, you know, they offered to promote me to be the assistant coach, assistant general manager, uh, which was an easy transition because I'd spent a lot of time at, at uh, work in hockey schools with Roger Nielsen, and I had a pretty good understanding of, you know, systems and, and uh, through my association with Roger. And so, um, you know, that's how it happened. Really didn't change a lot because a lot of the stuff I was doing, uh, I was already doing as a trainer in, in terms of selling advertising, you know, the scouting, finding billets, all that stuff, press notes. So it just allowed me to really focus on it more and not have to worry about treating injuries or sharpening skates. It freed me up to do more scouting. Uh, and then the part I loved the most was being on the ice every day for practice. So that, that was fun, but it, it just, it all came. I'd, I'd worked for the Peets, I think six or seven years full-time as a trainer, scout, everything else. And then that's when the, the uh, promotion came to assistant coach, assistant GM. So, um, Moving on from the moving on from the Pete's, uh, I know when we when we try um, tried recording this um, last uh, last time, and then we had some technical technical difficulties. You pointed out a uh, an issue in uh, Elite Prospects uh, in your in your Elite Prospects page. So not in 2010 2011 when you're with the Coyotes. In uh, your last season as the general manager of uh, Peterborough, you were selected as the assistant coach for the OHL All Star Game. Can you just take us through that whole experience? Yeah, something, you know, Matthew, I spent a lot of time doing it for the OHL. It was just putting those teams together uh, for the Super Series to play the Russians. And, uh, you know, it's just it was just something that uh, I think it all started after uh, my first championship as a general manager was in 1996. And uh, kind of as a, re as a reward, the league, you know, allowed me to become the, the, the general manager of, of the All-Stars, Eastern All-Stars. And then it grew you know, they had super series where you're playing Russian, the Russians. We had some series during that time where we played, you know, the Western Hockey League, the Quebec League. So there was a lot of different opportunities to uh, pick teams and be part of them. And that all came from the OHL, which, you know, obviously Dave Branch is a commissioner. And um, I think he respected the work I did. And, and I always kind of put the league first. So um, and it seemed like once I started every year, they were asking me to do it. And it's not fun when you're picking those teams because, inevitably you're going to upset somebody who felt their player should be on there or, you know, some other player shouldn't be. So you got to have thick skin, but um, it's a long winded answer, but it, I did it for a number of years and it was a lot of fun to be able to pick the best players in the OHL and have them on your team instead of having to compete against them all the time. So that, that's part of my time in the OHL that I was proud of. I've got a lot of team pictures that have, you know, players like uh, John Tavares, uh, you know, Alex, Peter Angelo, guys like that, that, you know, I didn't have on my own team, but I had on the all-star teams. So that, that's, they're nice keepsakes and good memories to have. Uh, yeah. So just, but again, to the, uh, the players that you had the privilege of coaching on that or of uh, managing and coaching on that team, uh, this is just going off the, 
the team that was available available on elite prospects. Players like Casey Zizekas, Mark Spolino, guys like um, Ryan Strom, the, the, uh, DSP, and Dougie Hamilton. You have you um, among among others that you've coached for the OHL All Stars. You've had the privilege of coaching many future um, future Stanley Cup champions, future elite players. But one player I really want to get into in uh, is Dougie Hamilton. He's been um, in the past few years. He's been going uh, his his stock, for lack of a better term, has been improving, improving, improving. His plays has gotten better as the year as his career progresses. And now they're saying, and now there've been uh, there's been um, analysts saying that he's like a shoe in to make Team Canada's Olympic team as a as a top four defenseman and All Star games. And can you just take us through like even even in your limited experience as uh, with him on your team, can you just uh, take us through how he is as a, like how you saw him as a player and um, yep. yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know what, Matthew? He's an interesting kid, uh, Dougie Hamilton. Um, he, he's a very, very intelligent guy. He, he was a, you know, in his OHL draft year, um, and, and, and I watched him a lot in his NHL draft year and really got to know him in his NHL draft year. So over and above hockey, academically, he, he was a brilliant student. He, he's a very, very intelligent guy. Um, I watched him a lot that year uh, playing for the Niagara Ice Dogs and, uh, you know, had him, I guess, on the one all-star uh, game. But uh, he, he's, a, he's a really skilled guy for a big man. And, you know, the NHL now, you have to be able to move pucks and, and skate to play defense. And, and it used to be, you know, all you had to do was really defend if you were big and you could, you could clutch and grab and survive. But the game now is so geared towards moving pucks. And, that's one of Dougie Hamilton's real strengths, I think, is his ability to get pucks up ice. He has the ability to run a, run a power play. And, and I think it all stems from his um, background academically being so bright. And uh, if I recall, Matthew, something that's really interesting about him, I believe both his parents were Olympic athletes. So he, he comes from you know, a very athletic background. So he's a big man with skill and the ability to kind of drive offense, which is, which is a huge asset, especially as a bigger guy now in the NHL. Well said, well said. And uh, there's also one, one person who I, uh, who I would love to get uh, a story or two uh, from you if, you, if you have it. Don Cherry, he um, obviously former, um, former Mississauga Ice Dogs uh, owner, and he was the head coach and uh, worked as the direct, director of player personnel for a, couple, a few years. Do you have any uh, any personal interactions with uh, with Don uh, during uh, your times working together uh, when he was when he was with the Ice Dogs and you're with the uh, the Peds? Well, you know what, Matthew, I, I met Don a few times. I, I don't uh, pretend to be a good friend of his, but <clears throat> there is a really good story. And uh, when I was with the Peterborough Peds, I got fired in 2010 after 30 years there, and it was uh, it was a really difficult time for me and. Um, you know, the Pete's were other than my family, really, I didn't have nothing else mattered to me. Um, you know, other than the, my, like I said, my family and the Pete's and all of a sudden I got fired. And, uh, so I was kind of in a bit of a dark place and, uh, out of the blue, I got a call from Bobby Orr, who we all know is one of the greatest players, if not the greatest player of all time. And I, he's an agent and I had a really good relationship with Bobby when I was in Peterborough and, he called me and tried to pick me up and he said, uh, by the way, he said, uh, make sure tomorrow night, Saturday night, you watch uh, Coach's Corner because he said, uh, Grapes isn't happy. So I was like, well, I know Don Cherry, but not that well. Uh, but I guess Bobby Orr had talked to him. So uh, he went on Coach's Corner and uh, 
defended me, um, you know, was, which at the time was, I, I couldn't believe he did it. And about, I don't know, maybe five years later, I was with the Coyotes and I was in an airport, I think it was in Winnipeg or somewhere. And I went into the Air Canada lounge and, and uh, there was Don Cherry talking to uh, somebody else from Sportsnet. And uh, so I went over and I said, hey, I hate to interrupt uh, Don, but and I had sent him a thank you card anyways, after he did it. But I said, I just want to introduce myself again. You know, my name, Jeff Tui. And I said, I'll never forget what you did for me on Coach's Corner. And I just wanted to thank you. And uh, Don couldn't have been more gracious. He's like, just, hey, no problem. Sit down. Let's just sit down. You know, let's, let's talk. And I said, no, I don't want to inter interrupt you guys. I just wanted to, to thank you. So that's part of Don Cherry, I think, that people don't know. And, and again, I don't pretend to be a good friend with Don or socialize with him. But but I had met him and, and uh, you know, I'll never forget that story. And uh, another one, just a quick one. I remember when he was in Mississauga, they had just started up and their team wasn't very good. And, and uh, they were in Peterborough one night and we got up like five, nothing on them early. And then we just stopped playing our good, like our top guys and just played the bottom guys. We didn't want to kind of rub it in their face. And, and uh, Don made a point of, I don't know if it was me or somebody within our organization just saying that, he appreciated it you know we didn't we didn't rub it in on him so Don's from my experience he's he's a real good guy that cares about people and uh I'm sure a lot of people we we miss him on coach's corner miss him I miss him more and more every week that was my that that was on coach's corner with Don and Ron was honestly what got me into watching hockey as a like as a three three-year-old four-year-old watching Saturday nights watching Leaf games and then always waiting for coach's corner to come on even to up until he was fired um yeah, best part of that. And I just know him, like I said, as, a, as he's got all the bluster and everything, you know, but but my interactions, which were limited, were, were very positive. And uh, I've got really, I, I just will never forget how kind he was to me during a difficult time. Uh, did you ever get a chance to listen to his, uh, the Grapevine podcast with him and his son? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a big podcast guy. I, I don't listen to it regularly, but I have listened to it. I love his stories. I mean, there, there's a lifetime of, of hockey history with Don Cherry and, and, uh, you know, there's another person that that is very similar to him in the OHL is, is Brian Kilray, who I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but Brian was a coach and general manager of the Ottawa 67s for years. And, you know, he's he's a little older now, but him and Don Cherry are best friends. Brian Kilray is the best storyteller I've ever met. And uh, he played a lot with with Don Cherry and they're good friends. So th those guys are they're interesting guys for sure. We may have to have him on uh, in the future to, to, tell, to tell us some of his uh his experiences yeah, he's a good man too like there's just there's a lot of history he was the ottawa 67s for 30 years i want to quickly go back to the Peets here uh when you first got into the Peets, uh dick todd was one of the guys like the year after you you got in uh eventually he he left the Peets and then he came back later and while you were the gm so did you kind of you kind of hire him back or what was you know, kind of the... that, that's an interesting story too. Dick Dick had left us uh, to go to the New York Rangers as an assistant coach mm -hmm. and uh, won the Stanley Cup there, and then ultimately retired. And uh, I was I had taken over the Pete's as a general manager, and and uh, we um, we we were looking for a coach in uh, whatever year it was, two thousand and eight, I think. And uh, um, I never even really thought of Dick because I thought he was retired. And, and, you know, we, we worked very closely together for 10, 15 years, whatever it was. And uh, he came in to see me one day in the office and he said, you know, what, what would you think about me coming back to coach? 
And I said, well, I hadn't really thought of it, but uh, you know, let's, let's talk about it. So, so he came back and, and uh, Dick Todd, you know, in his, in his heyday was one of the best coaches in, in the OHL. And he came back that year, uh, 08, 09, we, we went to the conference finals. And then the next year, 2009, 2010, we were OHL champions. And then he retired again after winning another championship. So um, it was an interesting, cause I went from working for him to, I mean, we always worked together and technically when I was a general manager, he was working for me, but we never looked at it that way. We worked together. And as a result, we got a, I got an OHL championship again in 2006. So I guess it was, so I'm off on my years. He would have come back. Oh, Oh, four, Oh five and Oh five, Oh six, I guess it was when he, uh, when he was with us. So anyways, but the same, same story and won the championship together again. So, uh, Dick and I won, uh, three, three of my four championships were with Dick and then one was without him. So, so we had, we had a lot of history together. All right. I, sh- I have one more question then, because I'm looking at elite prospects here and they, they did another thing. They, at first they have you coaching the super series and now they have you three, 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 uh, three championships, 89, 90, 95, 96, 2005, 2006. So wh- yeah, when else won, did you win a cup? 92, 93. And that was with uh, Chris Pronger and uh, guys like Corey okay. Stillman were on that team. So yeah, they're missing that one. I'd have to give him a call. Yeah, that team, that was a good team. We, uh, we went to the Memorial Cup final. That, that was interesting, Brody, because that year we played uh, Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds at the end of the, the regular season. They had what they called a Super Series. So the winner of the Super Series, which was the top team in the East versus the top team in the West of, of the Ontario League, uh, they played in a seven-game series to see who um, would host the Memorial Cup. So we played the Sioux. They beat us. Um, and then, we, then you went back into the playoffs. So then we went into the second round in the East. We played through, won the East, played them again in the OHL finals. Uh, and then we went to the Memorial Cup, played them in the Memorial Cup uh, right into the, into the championship game, which they ultimately won. But if you're familiar with Ontario geography, it's an eight and a half hour drive from uh, Peterborough to Sault Ste. Marie. So, so we played them a lot that year. And, uh, you know, that, that was a pretty that Memorial cup was a good one. We, we played the Memorial cup final. They beat us. I think it was four, two. And, and, uh, that was, that was a tough one. Cause we had a really good team. Like I said, uh, Chris Pronger was there, uh, Corey Stillman who played over a thousand games in the NHL. I mean, there's, there's some guys that have gone on to a lot of success in, in hockey since. I also got a question. Sorry. Yes, go ahead, go ahead. I got a question about scouting here. Yep. So what in your experience with scouting, what is, the biggest red flag for any any player that you're looking like to potentially draft or just like oh this, this is a catchy player what's what's the biggest red flag well you know what brody you you could have all the ability in the world but i think the biggest red flag that we're trying to trying to find out about is character <clears throat> and you know there's when you do your homework and you start to find out about kids and and listen we all make mistakes sometimes we end up drafting bad kids by mistake or um you know, sometimes kids get a bad rap. They're not really a bad kid. So trying to figure out, you know, the good kids from the bad kids, we don't want really good players that are bad kids because you can't win with them, you know, and, and uh, we certainly don't want average players that are bad kids. So trying to figure out, and, and I asked Chris Pronger one time too, I said, you know, in the NHL, like what, and, and if you know Chris at all, he, he's a real student of the game, but I said like, what's, the, what's, the, what separates guys in the NHL, like the great players and right away he just said it's character you know because in the nhl everybody this everybody has skill everybody's got competitiveness to a certain extent it's the character that that separates so 
red flags, uh, you know, that, that, especially in Arizona, Brody, we, we would take guys right off our list if we were sure <clears throat> that they were bad kids, which meant that there were some kids that were going to be fairly early picks that we didn't even have on our list. We, we would not have even taken in the seventh round. We just, rightly or wrongly, we just did our homework, found out about some of the things they were involved in, and we weren't interested. So that, that's the biggest thing that young players have to be aware of is, is the character. And, and uh, one way or another, we'll, we'll try and find out uh, if we can. Uh, speaking about character, um, one, one person I forgot to mention your time with the Peter Peets, Ty Domi. Um, can you just take us like, um, he's, he's a, he's a well-known player. He's beloved in, beloved in Toronto, top 100 player in Leafs history. Um, can you just take us through his, uh, how he was in his time uh, playing for Peterborough? Yeah. You know what, Matthew, I could, I've often said about Ty, I could write a book about the three years we had him. Like he, he was so entertaining and the, the things that happen <clears throat> all positive, of course, but, but Ty, I think we started to talk about this before, but it's an interesting story because we always had tough teams in Peterborough. And um, the year we drafted Ty uh, that spring, we got beat out in the, in the Eastern finals uh, by Belleville. And I think we had a better team, but they had a lot of toughness and, uh, and we kind of, they, they, and they had, they had some smaller guys, which aren't names you'd be familiar with, but a couple of guys like Darren Moxham, uh, um, Todd Hawkins, you know, they were highly competitive, not overly big guys, but really, really tough. And, and we just figured like, we need to get somebody like that. So we drafted Ty in the seventh round out of uh, Bell River, which is just outside of Windsor. Uh, he was playing junior B there. And, uh, you know, Ty, it was a funny story. He came down to the table and, and, you know, right away, he just came down and said, uh, Hey, uh, thanks for drafting me, but your, your information's wrong. You got me listed as five, nine, I'm five, 10. You know, and, and, but the thing with Ty that was really interesting was really all he wanted to do was fight. And uh, we brought him in his first year and we used to do these five mile runs, which were really hard conditioning runs out in the middle of winter out on, on back roads with hills and, you know, no team did it, but us and, and uh, Ty refused to do it. He just kept saying, I'm not a runner. I've got small legs, you know, I can't do it. And we kept saying, well, if you don't do it, you don't play. And uh, at one point he actually quit and went home and said, I, you know, if you're not going to play me, I quit. And uh, we said, okay, see you later. And, uh, you know, he came back and, and committed to doing what we wanted him to do to become a player. We wanted his toughness, but we also wanted him to become more than just a fighter. And, and Ty did that and became a really good player for us and uh, was a huge part of our 1989 team that won an OHL championship and, you know, went on to a great NHL career, which was not surprising to any of us that knew him. Um, you mentioned before, in um, you mentioned before when we were when we uh, did our first take of this, uh, Ty Domi was a huge uh, like die, he was diehard uh, and dedicated to Peterborough. And um, with his son being drafted um, and uh, for the London Knights, can you just take us through that uh, that story with Ty? Um, well, can you sorry? Oh my, I'm sorry. Can you take us through that story with Ty and like uh, his reaction to um, to Max being drafted by London? Well, first of all, the story I told you, Matthew, was, was when, when, Matt, when uh, Max was a little boy and uh, the draft was in Toronto at Maple Leaf Gardens, the OHL draft. And I, I gave Ty a call and I said, why don't you come to the draft, meet some of our picks. And so Ty showed up at the draft and he goes walking across the floor at Maple Leaf Gardens to get to our table with the Peets and uh, Erie Otters uh, general manager, Sherry Basson, stopped him, wanted to talk to him. And he, and he pulled out an Erie Otters hat and he put it on young Max's head and 
Ty took it off and said, uh, no, he goes, uh, he's only a Pete. He doesn't wear Erie Otters. And so, you know, uh, Sherry tried to put it back on him and, and Ty took it off and said, I told you he only wears Pete stuff. So came over, we put a hat on Max. So, but, but originally, uh, Matthew, it's interesting. Max was drafted by the Kingston Frontenacs and, uh, um, really didn't want to go there. He wanted to go to London, which, you know, Ty knew the ability of Mark and Dale Hunter to develop players. He felt, I guess, was the best fit for Max. So they made a trade and, and uh, the, the picks and that went back to Kingston were really well used. I believe a guy like Sam Bennett was one of the picks I think they got to use. Uh, um, but, but it benefited both teams and Max obviously went to London and, and, and had a great career there. And you know, anybody that plays for Dale Hunter gets better, obviously. And Max just kept getting better and better. And, you know, now he's in his, whatever it is, fifth or sixth season in the NHL. And he's a really good young player. A um, little bit like Ty. I mean, he can look after himself, but, you know, that's not a big part of his game. He, he's got so much skill. And, and the interesting thing about Max, too, is that, you know, he's a diabetic and he's learned to to deal with that and, and continue to play at a high level. And, and he also is a great role model for young kids that have diabetes. And, and I know he takes that role very seriously. Uh, did you ever, speaking of Max and Ty, did you ever see the picture of uh, Ty and uh, of the two of them together at, I wanna say it was at the time the Air Canada Center, if not it was the Bell Center with uh, both of them wearing uh, full Montreal Canadiens gear. Sitting well, that, that, was, that was at the Bell Center. That I think that was Max's first year. and you know, that, that's Ty. He's always kind of trying to stir things up and everything. But uh, yeah, that was weird seeing him in a Canadian's uh, jersey. I'm a Canadian's fan, so I liked it. But uh, I'm not sure some of the Leafs fans did. <laughs> All right. So it was nice talking to you. Uh, we don't have we don't have any Canadian's fans on here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Hey, I grew up, I've always loved the Canadians. I love the history. And one of the most prominent Montreal Canadians lives here in Peterborough, uh, Bob Ganey. And, and he's somebody that I really have a lot of respect for so I'm, I'm sorry but I am a Canadians fan <laughs> honestly as a as a, a lifelong Leaf fan seeing that picture it's I gotta say Maybe I grew up in my mouth Leafs. a little bit <laughs> that's okay you're passionate about your Leafs that's okay Matthew <laughs> I got another draft related question actually about prospects yeah. and I'm a goalie myself so I want to know kind of for goalies what is the thing you may majorly look for in a goalie prospect like what's the one thing that you really want to see and you know, sorry I, sorry to interrupt but before you get into this uh we have like we have five minutes till uh, the call kicks us out so can you uh, if you can get this done uh, answer this in less than five i will okay so so uh, brody the biggest thing when i was in arizona our, our director of amateur scouting was tim bernhardt who was an an ex-nhl goalie his thing the biggest thing he felt that separated goalies that and it's hard to to evaluate is uh, mental toughness. You know, your ability to play in tough games, shake off bad goals, uh, stay focused. Um, I mean, you obviously have to have some skills too, but the mental toughness and focus were the things that Tim Bernhardt always said to me, that's what separates goalies. That's what we got to find out about. And, and finding the ones like that, you know, Patrick Waz and guys like that, that they've got that competitive confidence, calmness to them. That's tough to find, but that's, that's the key from what all right, I got a question about the World Juniors since they ended in January, like I started January. So as your experience as the assistant director of scouting, how much does the World Juniors play into your thoughts on certain prospects? Yeah, it, it, it's really important, uh, Brody, because that's the highest level those guys can be playing at that aren't in the NHL. And uh, 
you know, one of the best experiences I had, I got to go to a lot of them, but one of the best experiences I had was uh, the World Juniors when it was in Helsinki and the Finns actually won it. The Finns had Patrick Laine and, and Jesse Pula Harvey and, and different, different guys like that. Um, and, you know, being able to watch them at the highest level tells you a lot. And uh, so it's very important. Not only is it great to watch, and I'll tell you what, as good as it is to watch in Canada, that was one of the best experiences that I had as a scout was being in, in Helsinki. And, and the interesting story was they, they, the Finns won it. They were staying in the same hotel as me. <clears throat> so I checked out the next morning and the lady at the front desk was apologizing because, you know, the team was making quite a bit of noise above me. And uh, I said, Hey, if you think I'm going to get upset about, you know, these guys winning a world championship, uh, not, I'm, I'm good with it. So that was a lot of fun, but, but those games are really significant when you're evaluating players especially those that are draft eligible. And actually funny story about that uh, world junior team. Uh, we actually interviewed the coach who, who was on that junior team that won in Finland. Oh, wow. He had the good hair, right? Yeah, he does. He does have some good hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a good coach. I like the way that team played, you know, and, and, and you'd be amazed, Brody, not to, to ramble on too much about it, but how passionate those Finnish fans were like in Helsinki, that building, I don't know, it was 10, 12,000. It was packed. And, uh, you know, the Finns beat the Russians in overtime. And, uh, boy, was that, that, that whole country embraced that, uh, that team. So it was a great experience. I think at the World Juniors this year, there was a thousand or a million unique listeners or watchers in the World Junior game against, uh, sorry, Sweden. And apparently, like, they love hockey. Like, World Junior hockey is big in Finland. I didn't think it'd be that big out there. Oh no, they're passionate about hockey and, and uh, it, you know, anybody that's, it, I had always heard about Finland, you know, like in the winter, it's dark, it's cold, you know, you're not going to like it. I loved it there. It was really cold, but the people are so friendly, but they are passionate hockey fans. And uh, that world championship meant a lot to that country and their fans. And you could see the players like being able to win it on their, in their own country, that that was pretty special. So I was lucky. I, I was able to watch all those games. I got another question here about uh, draft choices here. So as your t- in your tenure at Arizona, one, in the 2015 draft, you guys had the third overall selection. So what kind of drove you to pick a guy like Dylan Strome over Mitch Marner? Like what kind of factors did you see in a guy like Dylan Strome versus Mitch Marner? And yeah, yeah what are your kind of thoughts on the two? Well, you know, the biggest thing at the time, Brody, was we, we felt um, that they were very close. The other guy that was in the mix of that, uh, there was three players we were looking at, to be honest with you. There was Dylan Strom, there was um, Mitch Marner, as you said, and there was Ivan uh, uh, Provatov, the, the defenseman in Philadelphia. All really good players. And the, the separating thing for uh, Dylan Strom was the fact that he was a center and he's a big center. And we had to play in the Western Conference against San Jose, LA. They all had big centers. And, you know, we felt that centers, the only way you get them is to draft them. And, uh, you know, now I know Mitch Marner has really separated himself, but at the time we loved all three of those guys. And we said, the only thing that can separate them for us really is the fact that Dylan's a center and he's big. And we felt that, you know, physically he had a lot more development that, that was going to come. Um, so the need for a, for a number one center was what separated those three. We would have been great with, with any of the three of them, um, you know, but, but that, that, was, that was what made, kind of separated three really good players for us. And if you remember right after that draft and 
the next spring or, uh, or in the fall of that year, they had Hockey News put out a top prospect edition. Uh, and the number one prospect uh, not in the NHL uh, in, in that magazine was Dylan Strom. They had him right on the cover. I mean, he had some great years in Erie. Um, you know, he's still trying to find himself a bit in the NHL, but uh, we weren't alone in our assessment. But it's tough when you're looking at three really good players. You have to find something to separate them. And it was a positional thing. All right. Also, another one I got here, uh, Connor Garland. It took him a couple of years to emerge, but at the time of deciding, it was a 2015 draft as well, 123rd selection in the fifth round. What kind of made you, like, what kind of drew you to a player like that? And now he's really broken out. Like, at the time, did you expect him to break out like he has? Well, it's an interesting story there, too, <clears throat> because a lot of people like to take credit for that pick. But uh, what, what happened that year, Brody, we had a guy that lived in Moncton that was a really good scout for us, Mike Sands. And Mike, Mike had worked as a head scout for the Calgary Flames. He worked for Central Scouting, and he lived right in Moncton. And he saw Connor Garland play a lot. And... Uh, he was the guy that really pushed that. And he pushed, you know, Tim Bernhardt, myself to come and see him. And uh, Connor was such a, like a competitive guy. He's a little guy, but you know, there was, whenever there was something on the ice, he was in the middle of it, you know, like his, his helmet would be off, you know, and he'd be, he'd be pissing somebody off and, and then he'd be on the score sheet, you know, but, but that whole thing came, Mike Sands really, really pushed that. And uh, when you've got a good scout, like Mike is, um, you listen to him and uh, we were fortunate to get a guy like that in the fifth round and he's really taken off and you know what he's a guy Brody Connor Garland is a guy that believes in himself so we took him in the fifth round he didn't care like it was fifth seventh first it didn't he just wanted to get drafted and uh, you know every camp I went to and Connor was there and the you know the the rookie camp or the exhibition games you could just see you know, obviously we took him in the fifth, so we didn't know he's going to turn out as well as he did, but you could see improvement every year you were around him. So, um, you know, I, I'm really happy for Connor. He's doing as well as he is. And Mike Sands deserves a lot of credit for that pick. And also in, in 2016, you guys had the seventh overall selection and you picked a guy like Clayton Keller. What kind of drew you to Clayton Keller? Because in that draft, it was a it was a very uh, it was a very stacked draft. There was a very defense heavy draft in that year. So yep. what kind of drew you to? Because he's he, you talked about before you wanted centers, and he's he's a right wing shot. So what was your kind of thoughts on Clayton Keller at the time? Well, I think at the end of the day, you, you know, you, you don't want to be uh, when you're drafting, especially in the first round, you don't want to draft by position unless, as I said, you're trying to separate between three good players, you know, and you can't really determine, you know, center is always going to be a position that's crucial, but that didn't enter into it with Clayton. Clayton played for the program in, uh, in, in the, in the U S program in Ann Arbor. And, uh, you know, I watched him a lot as did our whole staff and, and he was so smart with the puck. And, and I had first seen Clayton, um, when he was like 15 years old, he was playing in it. I was with the generals, I think at the Oshawa generals, and he was at a tournament in Michigan somewhere and I'd seen him. And then the next two years, obviously he played for the program in, in Ann Arbor, but you could just see the talent. And first and foremost, when you're drafting, you want talent. And uh, he was so smart with the puck every game I saw him. And, and again, I was one of like five guys in this in, on our staff that, that wanted Clayton. So I don't want to come across like he was my pick that's our all of our pick but you know from what everything I saw you know he was just so creative with the puck so smart uh not a real big guy obviously but competitive wanted the puck on his stick in, in key moments and 
when you watch guys over the course of a season, if you watch them a lot, you see them in tough spots or, you know, big games when they need to come through and, and Clayton always did. So, you know, with him, when you're picking seventh, he just had too much talent. Um, and, and the name of the game in the NHL is offense. You got to be able to score uh, hockey sense was a huge thing for us. We valued it. And, and Clayton Keller had a ton of hockey sense and skills. So um, we were, we watched him a lot and we were happy to get him there. I got two more prospects I want to talk about because these guys really stand out to me. And I, I love the picks that Arizona has done in the past couple of years. They've done one of the best. Uh, in the second round, you took Kevin Ball. He's a huge defenseman. Um, did, did his size play into why you took him a bit earlier? Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> Kevin was a guy too, uh, Brody, that, you know, being in Ontario here, I saw him a lot. I saw him as an underage uh, in Ottawa. And when I first saw him, when he was like 15, he was a big kind of awkward guy. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if this guy's going to be any good, you know. And then the more you watched him, he kept getting better and better and better. And uh, then when you, you know, that draft year, um, he, he, he was, he was really good. And then he kind of fell off a little bit in the playoffs, but then he went into the under, under 18 tournament at the end of the year in Russia. And uh, he was really good there, just steady. And, and again, we, we didn't have a, we had some good defensemen in our system in Arizona at the time, but we didn't have any with that kind of size, especially that can skate like Kevin. So uh, just to get a, again, you got to defend at some point size and you got to play a heavy game when you get into the playoffs. So we just felt that that was important. Um, unfortunately, after we left, the people that took over didn't value a guy like Kevin and uh, he got traded to um, New Jersey as part of the Taylor Hall deal. But I believe that Kevin Ball will play in the NHL and be a real solid player because he's big, he can skate, uh, moves the puck, makes a good first pass. And if you look at his stats, he got better every year offensively. He's never going to be an offensive guy, but his offense developed every year in the OHL. So I was a big fan of his, as was our staff. And uh, I think I think at some point, Arizona is going to regret trading him. I guess they already probably do because they don't have Taylor Hall anymore either. So <laughs> nothing to show for that trade. Before we continue, actually, what are your thoughts on Taylor Hall signing one year, six and a half with the Sabres? I think it was smart. I mean, you, you know what happens, Matthew? He gets a chance to play with Jack Eichel, who is an elite center, which he hasn't had for a while. Um, this is such an uncertain time, you know, if he can put up the numbers that everybody thinks he's going to put up playing with, with Jack Eichel, I think that once, you know, times become a little more certain, he's probably going to command even a little more money. So it's such an uncertain time. I think it was a good move for him. And when you, when you get to play with an elite center, like, like Jack Eichel, I, it, it's certainly not going to hurt his value. That's for sure. So Aaron Ferris, who is his agent, really smart guy. And, uh, I, I think this will probably work out really well for Taylor. Uh, I don't know personally with me, like I, when I saw he signed with, uh, with Buffalo, right. As soon as he signed, I, I saw like reports coming up that the, the avalanche were going after him and uh, Stockick made multiple offers to him that would have been worth more. I think it was, it was worth more than uh, what he got with Buffalo. So personally, I was kind of shocked that he ended up choosing a team like Buffalo over going to a win a cup and B play with McKinnon and Landis Cog and Rantanen and, 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 yeah, and I think the difference maybe, and I don't know how, how he looked at it, Matthew, but you can you can go to uh, uh, Colorado. You're probably not going to be the number number one center or wing. You know, he plays both. I guess probably more on the wing. But uh, when you go when you go to Buffalo, you're the guy with, with Jack Eichel. Right. You know, the whole offense is going to revolve around you, the power play. Um, 
you know, and maybe, and I don't know Taylor Hall that well, but maybe he was like, you know what, I want to make a difference here. I want to try and create a culture in Buffalo. Who knows? But I think the number one draw was to be able to play with Jack Eichel, which, you know, if I, if I was a player, I wouldn't mind playing with him because he's, he's under the radar uh, elite player. He, he's a really good player. Yeah. Seeing him in the Atlantic division, that guy, he, he knows how to change a game. Yeah, he really does. I mean, I watched him at, uh, at Boston University and I, you know, in his draft year, I remember watching him coming out of a game, just like this guy's, this guy's really good. So uh, I like watching him. And listen, if you're, if you're looking at the Buffalo Sabres, how nice are their, their jerseys now? That new look they've got, they look really good. That's a good looking jersey. I wanted them to go back to the uh, the Dominic Hasek jersey. No, like the red and gray one. I, I'm a big fan of that one. Oh, no, you can't, you can't, Brody. You got to stay with the gold and blue. The original, <laughs> the original uh, logo there to me is pretty. It's a, it's a sharp look. So maybe that was part of why he went there too. He liked the I don't know. <laughs> the, the jersey being able, being able to be uh, in the Bills Mafia with uh, jump jumping on uh, and breaking folding tables and out yeah. out in uh, tailgating for a Bills game. <laughs> But you know what, too, Matthew, if you've ever been to a game in Buffalo, those fans are passionate for the for the Sabres. And and it's a nice like it, it's a neat place to live because you can get around a little easier than, than some of the other big cities. And a lot of guys that play there stay there. They never leave. So it's another place that's kind of under the radar. And I know the winters are a little hard, but it, you got passionate fans there like they love the Sabres. So uh, probably a lot of those factors entered into his decision making. Yeah, you make a good point. I want to go back to one quick prospect here and then uh, that's it. That's it for my prospect questions for the picks that you made. So the one here, Barrett Hayden, you took him in fifth overall in 2018 and the NHL, like their uh, central scouting had him at ninth as a forward, uh, like skater in North America. So why did you kind of take him as early as you did? Like what kind of drew you to the Barrett Hayden? Well, and again, it wasn't just me, but my contribution to that was uh, I had seen him a lot that year, as had our staff. But what separated me a little bit, Brody, was that I've known uh, Barrett since he was a kid. His dad uh, played for us in Peterborough. Uh, Barrett grew up here in Peterborough. His dad's a a high school teacher here. His dad uh, coached in the OHL for a while, but he's a teacher now. But I met Barrett, first of all, when he was like a major peewee or something, and and, uh, his focus, his determination, you know, his maturity, his character is high, high end. And that year in the playoffs in his draft year, he played in the Sioux and, and they were playing the Kitchener Rangers in the, in the conference finals. And uh, Kitchener was a big, heavy team that really loaded up and the Sioux beat them. And one of the main reasons was Barrett. Barrett took every key face off. He started every um, every period they started with him at center. He was playing hurt at the time and, uh, was like so competitive and, uh, you know, so, so I knew the character of him. Um, but what he did in the playoffs and, and again, he's a center, which is a, which is a, you know, coveted position. The problem with, with Barrett, and I think he really showed last year in the world juniors, you know, when he was given an opportunity, how good he is. Um, unfortunately they kept him in Arizona last year. He didn't play a lot. And he kind of lost a year of development, which I think has hurt him. But uh, once he gets his legs under him, Barrett Hayton is, you know, he could be a captain. He could be, he could be a Shane Doan type player, um, just leadership. You know, at, at 17, he could have been one of the captains in the Sioux. So there, there's a lot of factors, Brody, but he, he's a really good player. And I, I'm not sure that he's been developed properly. I think the new people in Arizona probably have a good feel for, 
you know, how to move forward the, uh, with Barrett, but I, I have very confidence he's going to be a really good player. He's a type player you win with. And again, character is such a huge thing. And one of the things, Brody, over the years, any championship team I had, you had to have leadership. Like that's a huge part of a winning team. And, and Barrett has that like in spades. So moving on from, uh, from Arizona, um, you had, you you worked for an NHL team for a few years. Now you're back. Now you're back in the OHL with the Kingston Broadnacks. Do you ever see yourself coming back uh, and working for, for an NHL team in any capacity? Well, first, first of all, I was with Kingston for a year, uh, Matthew, and uh, I know it's not well known, so it's not, not your issue, but I, I'm not with them anymore. I left. They uh, just out of the blue last July or August, I guess they fired the general manager there without really any reasoning. They did warning. They just fired him. And um, so I, I couldn't stay there after he was a good friend of mine and the way he was treated, I, I left there. So currently uh, I'm not with them. Could I see myself back in the NHL? Yeah, I'd love to go back. You know, I, but, but I, I've come to the conclusion now that, uh, you know, if I'm going to work anywhere, um, I have to be with good people. I'm not just going to go anywhere. Obviously with the pandemic, no one's knocking my door down because there's no hockey going right now. Um, but once it fires up, if, if opportunities come, it has to be with good people. And, uh, you know, I've had, I've had some experiences. Most of my experiences have been with good people. Unfortunately, I've had a couple with some bad people and I'm not going through that again. So I want to get back into, I love scouting. I love, even if it was junior, I happily stay in junior and just help out a team. I, as I've said to people, Matthew, I've done the, you know, the corporate ladder part. I've been a general manager. I don't need any of that now. I just, I want to be involved with good people. I want to, I love scouting. I love helping young players. I love uh, being part of a team. So hopefully once hockey fires up again, you know, someone needs uh, someone that can help them win. Uh, you know, because I know how to do that, and I hope there'll be an opportunity. But again, it has to be with with good people. Um, so, just one last thing. Um, speaking about the OHL and hot, and with this pandemic going on, hockey not being back, um, the consensus right now, unless something has come up since uh, since last since last time I, I was reading, I was reading. Um, there's gonna be non it's gonna be non contact this year in the OHL. And uh, that is starting to drive many players to go uh, and find work overseas. Um, like, for example, one of your um, your ex uh, players in, uh, for the Kingston Frontenacs, Francesco Curry, um, he signed with a uh, team in Austria. He got loaned to a team in Austria yep. about a week or, or a couple weeks ago. And um, so, do you see uh, like how do you think the season will turn out with a non if it's a non-contact or if it, if it were to come back as a contact? Um, as a contact league for this year, how do you just, how do you see it playing out? And the I don't know. I'm really concerned. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> I don't think you can play hockey without contact, you know, and that was not an OHL decision that was made by our provincial government. Um, and, you know, obviously the OHL, I think, have, you know, tried to reach out to them and, and rectify that uh, situation. And, and again, hockey's a contact sport. You don't have to kill people, but it is, there is contact for, and I think it has to be there. Unfortunately, you know, with us being in an emergency shutdown here in Ontario right now, I, I, I'm starting to worry, to be honest with you, Matthew, whether they're going to be able to play at all this year. I mean, you know, Brody would be aware in the Western League, they're talking about a 24-game schedule. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It's tragic, really, because of all the players that, you know, aren't getting a chance to play. So many good young players. Like, <clears throat> even in Kingston, we had Shane Wright. I mean, those fans in Kingston are being cheated, not cheated, but, you know, they, they're not going to get a chance to see him in his second year. He got 40 goals as a 15 year old, you know? So 
it's a tragedy, this, this COVID, um, in terms of what it's done to a lot of people. Ho hockey, I know in the whole scheme of things, isn't that important, but, but to a lot of these players it is and the fans it is. So I'm hoping I'm wrong. I'm hoping they can find a way to play. I'm just not sure how they're going to be able to do it until they get the vaccine out there. So let's keep our fingers crossed because in Ontario or the West of Quebec, junior hockey is one of the best entertainment things you, you, you can have for families and to get out and watch. And there's so many good players now um, that the pandemic has really put a halt to this. So it's unfortunate. So long-winded answer. I, I really don't know. I don't know what's going to happen here, whether they're going to be able to play. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm pessimistic at this point. Do you, uh, what do you think the possibility of a bubble or multiple like smaller bubbles would be? Well, they tried it in the Quebec League. Uh, you know, the Quebec League tried to play with the, the Maritime teams in their own little league and then with other teams kind of, you know, going into a bubble in Quebec City and they still had issues. You know, you look at, you look even in the NHL with, with grown men like Dallas, they haven't played a game yet, you know, just with, with the COVID, um, the risk that comes with it. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you can do a bubble at junior when you've got kids, you know, trying to go to high school, like, and let's be honest too, these teams aren't owned in a lot of cases by multi-billionaires, you know, there, there's no fans and there's no money coming in for these teams. So they're all bleeding money right now. And, and uh, I know in the Quebec league as well, the, the government helped, they, they supplemented a lot of these teams uh, to my knowledge to date in the West, uh, Saskatchewan, they reached out to some of their, uh, uh, Western league teams and the tier two teams and gave them, you know, some money to help them survive. But the rest of the West and Ontario, to my knowledge, hasn't done anything to help these teams. So it's a tough time for junior hockey and, and it's, it's unfortunate, but let's hope we can get through it and get back to where it should be. Well said, well said. Brody, I just want to quickly, I just want to quickly jump in here. Uh, you're talking about the WHL and yeah, I, I, um, sorry, a buddy of mine, who lives, who grew up in the same town as me, a small town. So it's, it's pretty big that he made it to the WHL. And he told me, yeah, that they're, he's leaving out soon. He's going to go head out to Moose Jaw and go play there. So I hope that they can play well and hope that they can actually get a season in. Cause I do too, especially with some of these players. Like if it's your draft year and you're just sitting at home doing nothing, like it kind of, it could ruin someone. Like you could see an NHL player, like back in, back when you were scouting and you said you had to go find players, like it's almost that situation where like, you don't know these players, how they're going to turn out. Like you get some crazy late round steals now. Well, it's going to be interesting too. One of the things I've heard, and it's just a rumor that I heard Brody, but it's a, it's a good one is that, you know, there's, there's a lot of confidence that junior hockey is going to fire up for sure next fall and be back to normal uh, that the NHL may in fact have two drafts, uh, you know, watch, watch games for a year, have one draft that would just involve the kids that were eligible for the, like the draft would be held in 22, 2022, but the, the, the first draft would be for those kids that were eligible for the 2021 draft that weren't seen. And then, mm -hmm. you know, maybe a week later you have the 2022 draft. So in effect for one year, you're preparing for two drafts. And I, I don't know how else you could do it. I mean, I don't know how you're going to have, you know, the drafting in the NHL and development is so important now, like you, the good teams, the successful teams draft and develop well. And it's really tough to do that if you, you can't, I mean, there's, I know there's some games in Europe. I know you can watch some stuff on video, but to not be able to get out and watch kids regularly, especially in, in Canada and the U S that that's difficult. So again, it's just, a, it's just something I heard floated out there, but it makes a lot of sense to me that maybe there's going to be two drafts after the 21, 22 season. So that, that might, I don't know. Let's, that, that's going to be interesting to see. 
So that would be more of an uh, like an MLB format, uh, since if I'm not mistaken, I'm not the biggest uh, MLB. Uh, I'm not the most knowledgeable with baseball, but uh, I'm pretty sure they have their draft in like June or July, in the middle of the season, and then the players can just hop hop right into the games in the middle of that year. Well, no, they would still do it, Matthew, like they do now at the end of the season. They'd have it like in in you know the end of June, so maybe the first draft would be the last week in June, and then a week later, maybe the first week of July, they would have the second draft. So you would spend all of the 21-22 season evaluating players for two drafts because there may, you know, maybe they just can't have a draft at the end of this year because there just hasn't been enough viewings of these kids. And, you know, drafting is crucial. So, and again, that's just something I heard, you know, out there. I don't have any mm-hmm. knowledge if that makes sense or if it's going to happen. To me, it does make sense, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see. If that does come to pass, you might have to hop on TSN as an analyst now. I could do Bob, it. Bob McKenzie's in semi-retirement. You should hop in. No, no, listen, Bob McKenzie, you, you don't, that, that's elite status in media, but, uh, you know, not, they, uh, I can do it. So if I'm available, if they're looking. I hear Tim's looking for a co-host for Tim and Sid. You should just jump in, make it Tim and Jeff. I could do that too. I'm, I'm a passionate sports guy. I could do it. But uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting change there too with Tim and Sid because I enjoyed watching them too. That's going to be different. Mm-hmm. And this pandemic affects everything like that because now, you know, there's obviously not as much to talk about. Thankfully, yeah. I don't know about you guys, but thankfully the NHL's going now because I can watch games every night, you know, which uh, I was getting sick of, of Netflix. So it's nice, nice to have the NHL back. I've been watching a lot of Habs games. They're very fun to watch. Good, good. You're a good man, Brody. I like how you think. But I see that Jets, that Jets uh, jersey there, but I also see you got the Canadians one right in the middle. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sticking. I'm sticking to Leaf hockey. They're playing the Oilers tonight. Austin's out. Thornton's out. Robertson's out. So it's gonna be an interesting game to watch. Yeah, they got a good team though, Matthew. The, the, I'll say that the Leafs are a good team. I mean, you get Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, you know Morgan Riley. That, that that's a good team. They're fun to watch. And you play the Oilers. There's a that's a lot of skill on both teams. And I had Zach Cassian in Peterborough. So you know, watching him play for uh, Edmonton's always kind of cool. One of my ex players. Great. On, and on that note, I think uh, we should we should uh, let you go. There's a game starting uh, fairly soon. We want to keep you uh, keep you waiting. All right. Well, listen, guys, this has been fun. So anytime you ever want to talk hockey, let me know. I'm always available, and uh, I appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Broly Talks Hockey Podcast. Next week, we'll have Craig Hartsburg come talk on about his coaching career, playing with Wayne Gretzky, and more. Stay tuned.